Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Eller, and today our guest has seven years of law enforcement analysis experience, all with the Oxford Police Department in Alabama. He also has 12 years of IT experience. He's here to talk about technology and law enforcement analysis, and hopefully he will soften my hard feelings towards police department IT. Please welcome Kevin Mitchell. Kevin, how are we doing? Doing well, doing well. Thank you. All right. How are things in Alabama? Things are pretty good. We're gearing up for our holiday season. So a lot of what we'll talk about today is going to be what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis. All right. So you have, I think it's a rare position that you're in because dealings with some of the duties that you're going to describe mixture of IT and analysis. So I'm curious how your position came to be. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So back in 2018, I was working for a local community bank and uh, looking for an opportunity to get back in law enforcement. I had a really good relationship with our current chief, Bill Partridge, and uh, some of the other investigators who started our unit. And so it came to me with an idea as far as having some disconnects between what the police department and public safety needed as far as day-to-day IT operations and what the city IT was able to provide. And so we were looking at a typical eight to five deal with IT where if anything happened after hours or over the weekend, it was a little bit harder to get those things addressed. And Mm -hmm. so my position was created as to have someone with an IT background to help manage all the technology for the police department, which also has evolved into all public safety, including fire and EMS. So I'm on an all-call status uh, pretty much all the time, and I'm able to address all of our technology needs uh, pretty quickly with respect to networks, in-car MDTs, and things like that, and make sure that our officers and our staff are able to do everything they need to do without minimal downtime. Yeah. So I see on your resume here, your degrees in... Is it criminology, your criminal justice? Yes, criminal and, justice with a concentration with digital. And a concentration of with what? Digital forensics. Okay. And so you're not classically trained necessarily with IT. So where did your IT knowledge, skills, and abilities come from? So I actually ended up taking an entry-level IT position at that local community bank. My wife and I moved to the Oxford area back in 2013. And mm-hmm. so I was looking for a full-time career to jump to, and I befriended the president of that bank who offered me an opportunity to interview for that position. Basically started out with a computer and a phone, and the mm-hmm. IT director basically walked in a self-paced learning of basic networking, server management, and was specifically managing our bank software at the time. And so a lot of what I've learned as an IT professional has been basically on-the-job training some organized training classes here and there, but just really just my need to learn. And I don't like saying I can't do something or failing. Mm -hmm. And so I will learn anything I like. I'll become an expert at it for lack of a better term. So specifically, what did that position uh, teach you that helped you once you came over to the police department? Biggest one is customer service. Mm -hmm. You're going to have people who have varying degrees of comfortability with technology. 
And so one of the things I think I bring brought to the table was the ability to relate to people who are technology adverse and don't even want to turn on a computer. And then mm-hmm. people who have way more knowledge than I did yet, which helps when I interface with the IT department here or working with other agencies on technology specific uh, projects. Um, on top of that, just basically having the ability to learn again the fundamentals of networking, which directly translate to our camera uh, equipment. So whether it be camera trailers, pole cameras, or building cameras, a lot of that knowledge and training made it easy for me to transition into helping manage our camera program and network. Um, and just understanding how technology works at its core, where in order for something to happen on a computer or on a network, the computer has to have the correct instructions, has to have the correct resources, the network has to be set up a certain way to allow certain traffic. And so all of those skills that I learned at the bank essentially help prepare me for the role that I have right now. And when you deal with a pretty dynamic situation where no two days are the same, we're always testing out new technology, just having that comfortability of knowing that I have a fundamental foundation of IT and then also knowing when I need to ask for help has really mm-hmm. been the claim of my success. Yeah. Now, do you think you interview well? And and what I mean by that, as I am looking over this, it seems like you had two positions there that got presented to you and maybe not necessarily having the typical education and background, and yet you were able to get both positions and flourish. Yes. One of, for me, what I really pride myself on is when I do have an opportunity, I want to be the best at it. And so basically talking about, taking a lot of self-initiative to learn more about the craft that I'm trying to step into. The other thing that's helped me is having really good relationships, and I've always been involved in the communities that I live in. Mm-hmm. And so having those prior existing relationships with the bank community and the leaders at that institution that I still have to this day, really help people look past whatever deficiencies as far as my skills and training for the role that I was hired and giving me an opportunity, which was also a jumping point for me to come to the police department. Again, leveraging the relationships that I had with many of the staff members here at Oxford Police Department, and then just giving people the ability to see the work that I did at the bank based on relationships with other individuals. And so, yes, my interview skills, like, as you can tell, I like to talk. Um, (laughs) I love what I do. And I love expressing why I do what I do, why my position is so unique. Just basically promising and reassuring that if you give me an opportunity, I guarantee you I'll be one of the best assets that you've had in your organization, which is what I try to do every day is is leave this place a little bit better than I found it the day before. Nice. And so your title is IT specialist slash criminal intelligence analyst at Oxford Police Department. So as you're walking in the door, is it pretty well-defined what the goals of the position are? Like how much you're supposed to be doing IT, how much you're doing, supposed to be doing analyst work, or was there something where you're at actually trying to build the position as you go? So ironically, as it sounds, because of what I do with technology for the department, everything pretty much intertwines. And the first focus that I had was the IT. And then because mm-hmm. of the skill set that I had prior law enforcement, uh, I've done private security and executive protection for many years. And so I had a lot of disciplines that I brought to the department when I was hired. I was able to fill a lot of gaps very early on as far, and what led to the analyst title being added on because mm-hmm. I had a really good understanding of how analytics work using different databases programs and then that evolved into managing our rms program helping with our cad program 
and basically finding innovative ways to take all that data, give it to our employees, and then figure out ways to make our department more effective in how we deploy our resources or how we evaluate buying additional equipment or technology to make our, our jobs a little bit easier. And so mm-hmm. going from just pure IT, where I'm supposed to make sure all the computers work, servers network, to now my position pretty much encompasses IT and analysis work every day because I'm evaluating all the systems and programs that we're using for the analysis portion of it as the IT slash user director, or however you want to put it for public safety, but then also I'm a consumer of the things that we're using as far as servers and databases and programs. And so because of my working knowledge of how everything works in the back end, I'm Mm -hmm. able to help push that software a lot further. And then in some instances, we're learning the software better than the vendors and the trainers that are training us. So specifically, when Fusis came to market about three years ago, we were one of the first couple dozen or so agencies that adopted it. And we're more of a hands-on type of agency, especially with technology. And so once we got our installation, we were doing things that they didn't realize we knew how to do because we just basically tried to get under the hood as much as possible and actually started giving them value to their product because of the things that we were figuring out and doing. And uh, I think we've helped bring about two or three dozen improvements to their system over the past three years uh, that have gone to market and have now helped other agencies, uh, especially like in the metro Atlanta area here in Alabama. So that's how hands-on we are, relying on that analysis and IT background. Helps me help my team make sure we can do things. So remind me again what Fusis does. So Fusis is built as a real-time crime center program Mm. where they can aggregate a lot of tools and resources for departments. And so as simple as pulling in all your camera infrastructure into a single pane of glass and putting it on a map so I can see where all of my assets are for analysis or real-time crime center purposes. But then for us specifically, we have our LPRs in there. We have our CAD tied in there. We have other programs that basically create a single pane of glass for us as an agency so we can consume a lot of data in a single pane of glass and make decisions a lot quicker based upon the role or the type of operation we're working on. Yeah. Now, did the police department get any kickback for those improvements that you mentioned before? Not necessarily. (laughs) One of the things that we really pride ourselves on is partnerships with our vendors that we work with. We're very Mm -hmm. particular about the vendors that we work with specifically department. The biggest benefit for us is being able to influence these vendors in how the program develops over time. Mm-hmm. And then what we offer back is because we're a centralized hub for a lot of public safety agencies in East Central Alabama, we're able to showcase this product that we're using and help drive business their way. And so when it comes to, I guess, new advances and improvements, we may not have to pay as much for a new advancement or improvement because of that partnership, because we're doing so much work on the backside for them. So when you're starting the position, you mentioned some of the program improvements, but is there certain accomplishments that you completed the first couple of years and you're getting your hands on on everything? So I think First two things that immediately stand out, the first being in any police organization, trust is paramount. No matter what role you fill in that agency, if the agency at large, the employees don't trust you, it's hard to do anything different. And then also Mm -hmm. the opportunity to grow and learn like that. And so one of the first things that I did when I got here is I would ride a shift with the shift officers uh, at least once or twice a week. 
one was selfish because I wanted to figure out uh, what pain points are they having, what kind of technologies in the cars, and kind of build a roadmap of how I would like to improve these things, mm -hmm. uh, which then leads into the second part. Uh, one of the biggest rewards for me is the kudos I get from time to time, even from our patrol guys, because I think sometimes with technology, we forget that the traditional patrol officer has to deal with a lot of technology, and my goal is to make that as thoughtless as possible for them. So when it comes to their computers in the car, their printers, the cars themselves, the emergency equipment, I've been able to contribute a lot to that as far as the car as a whole, making that mobile office for them as seamless and simple as possible. And I'm most proud of, because of that starting point, uh, these vehicles that we're putting on the road this year are some of the most technologically advanced vehicles that we have put in as a city. And so something as simple as a MiFi battery exploding because it's been sitting in the heat all day, now transitioning to a cradle point where they don't have to worry about the battery on the MiFi, they don't have to worry about if the cradle, the MiFi is turning on or not. Mm -hmm. Just putting more and more technology in this car, so all they got to turn the car on, fire up their computer, and start their shift within a matter of minutes without to worry about, is my computer going to turn on? Is my MiFi going to turn on? Is my radar going to turn on? Just really making an intentional effort to make their office for 12 hours a day as seamless as possible and we're seeing a lot more improvements and again i never take full credit i have a wonderful team that i work with that help me at every step which makes my life a little bit easier with all the things that i'm responsible for but those are the two biggest rewards of having the trust of the everybody that i work with and then also seeing that they have the best equipment possible that the city can offer so how about the programs in the cars is, is there much improvement that you've been able to put into those and i'm when i say you i'll would you say your team? <laughs> yeah, so typically with a patrol car, the bare minimum that you're going to see in a patrol car, of course, outside of the computer, is your CAD system, which is what we're using to get dispatch to calls or look up records as far as previous calls. Our record management system, which is where the officers are doing their reports, looking up reports, getting basic local information for a person. And then some instance of what's called NCIC, which is the uh, national database that has all of our criminal records, stolen vehicles, all that pertinent information, driver's license information. So basically preventing them from having to continuously go back to the office to do these basic functions every day. On top of that, we also have some software that is uh, provided by the state where we're able to look up NCIC in the cars uh, from the state's uh, organization. They can do rec reports, issue e-citations. And so one of the wild cars, if anybody's ever done technology or done, dealt with IT, printers are the bane of our existence. <laughs> And so something as simple as I get a call at 11 o'clock, hey, I'm working step, uh, which is a selective uh, traffic enforcement program. My printer's not working. I'm on the side of the road. I got somebody pulled over. I really need to, to get this ticket printed out. And even coming out to that traffic stop or remoting in and making sure that that ticket is able to be printed out or that warning is able to be printed out, I think really helps out knowing that even when this technology fails, uh, because of the things that we have in place, something as simple as a remote access program, allows me to take care of a lot of issues for the department, no matter where they are. And then when we start getting into more advanced programs, one of the difficulties is, especially in today's day and age, making sure that we're correctly identifying people or finding information about these people beyond what we're able to access with NCIC or CSIS information. And so now we're leveraging third-party databases that give us the ability to um, give additional information to the officers in the field 
uh, where we're doing information sharing programs with other agencies. So we use a program called Finder um, that's becoming more prevalent here in the Southeast, specifically in Florida, uh, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, where now I can access data in a data information sharing program Finder with other agencies. And so if I feel like somebody's giving me an incorrect name, incorrect date of birth, I'm not relying on just the CGIS information. I can also look at records and things like that. So if I got a nickname, I can search about uh, anywhere from 80 to 100 agencies to see if that nickname matches the description to a name. And so all this information is being utilized in the car. They're able to do a lot more advanced investigations. And then you start factoring in our interdiction units. Now, these guys have way more information to figure out what's going on when we're doing interdiction, whether it's human trafficking or drug trafficking. And, and feel like by the time we end that traffic stop or we end our interaction with that individual that we're interviewing on the side of the road, we feel comfortable about who they are and the stories that we're being told based upon all the information that we're be able to we're being able to pull not even having to deal with dispatch or deal with our intelligence unit yeah now you mentioned rms oh, who's your who's your vendor <laughs> so we currently use a company called southern software they're a They've been in business for a number of years so it's not the newest type of software but mm -hmm using programs like QSIS and other programs like Finder, we're able to bridge that gap between our CAD or RMS and the state software and best as we can without having a single CAD and RMS program. Still give us the ability to do a lot of analysis to help our command staff make decisions about how we operate day to day. And so it basically has all the fundamentals as far as being able to do case management, evidence inventory, everything that you would want out of a RMS program, we have access to it. Um, but we're always looking for ways to improve um, our technology posture, whether it be RMS, whether it be CAD, any kind of analytical program. So we're always trying to make sure that we have the best that we can offer our department. Yeah. Now, I usually ask analysts if their RMS is RMS-y, whether they like it or not. But with you, it's all square on your shoulders if it's messy, right? Yeah. But again, <laughs> uh, so we have an RMS administrator that I directly support. And so she deals with the day-to-day -day administration. And so I think divers was one of the biggest pain in the butts to mm -hmm. kind of get past because every RMS provider had to be divers compliant by a certain date. We missed that date because the state wasn't ready to be divers compliant. And then there were a few, I would say for about six months after divers came down, where all the vendors were trying to work through, making sure that they were NCIC and state compliant. So we've gotten past that and it's actually been a little bit easier to manage because we just have that one RMS administrator slash records clerk. And so that's a lot of work on her. And so I'm always looking for ways to make her job a little bit easier. And so when I first got here, kind of to go back to one of your original questions, uh, we did a lot of stuff on paper and mm -hmm. I would ask, you know, why are we doing this on paper? We have computers and servers. While we're doing this on paper, we have computers and servers. And so everywhere that I can implement technology and reliably implement it to where we're not doing paper things, uh, the officer's not having to fill out all these different cards and papers and forms for little menial tasks like uh, intake for our jail or doing a vehicle inventory when we're getting something towed. The more we can do that in the computer, the easier it's going to be for them and be efficient. But at the same time, Anything that's on a piece of paper, I can't use in any kind of analytical form. But mm -hmm. if I do a field interview card on my computer, that data goes into our database, and that's more information we can use for the analysis component or something even as simple as, hey, this person has now been identified because we did a field interview. Six months down the road, 
we run that person and now we have something to go back on to help us however they're involved in the case all right let's get into becoming coming more on the analyst side of things because as you mentioned you started with the it side and then then your roles and duties as an analyst came later so how did that come to be had had that bridge get formed okay and so when I was hired, I was assigned to a new unit that was stood up in 2018 called the East Metro Area Crime Center. And so our unit specializes in digital forensics, digital intelligence, and we also have a real-time crime center. Um, when Before our building that we're in now was built, we all worked out of a conference room inside of our special operations facility. And literally, we all sat around a uh, conference table. All of our computers were strewn around. That's where our lab was. That's where we were doing our intel. We were managing our cameras from all this little room. And so at the time, not everybody in the unit realized how much experience I had uh, in public safety and law enforcement and was and also with my investigative background with security and things like that. And so we would all be consulting on cases and I would start making contributions. And as I contributed more, and how it works, raise your hand enough to start getting more and more responsibility. Um, <laughs> I'm still learning how to say no. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just came out of me. I, if I see a problem, I try to offer solutions and I try not to be a problem. And so mm-hmm. if I could do something that allowed the investigator to spend more time in the field or do things that were a little more time consuming, um, I took on those roles, mainly just eating my lawn. It, it's something that is really, really hard to get rid of. Uh, but it gave me the ability to feed that and you know, be able to work on the field, in the field, whether we're doing investigations, just doing ride along, just trying to immerse myself in what was going on and then take that data and knowledge and be helpful. And so as the department recognized that, hey, I have these skill sets that evolved into me officially being classified as an analyst because of my ability to help take information data and then turn it into something that we can use to be actionable. And then my primary focus is on the technology side of analysis. And so now we're finding data points and data sets, whether it be cameras, LPR, software programs, putting that all together in a digestible format and then giving that to the appropriate end users to do whatever they need to. And so primarily what my day looks like like that is we have a ticketing system where internal and external agencies can request a us. And so whether they need intel on a car that they're looking for that may be a suspect in some type of felony or something like that, I'm able to go in, check all of our databases, check all my LPR data. If there are any cameras that are relevant to it, if there's any background information on that person, essentially, we're building a case file to then give either to our investigators or an outside agency of information and data that will help further their case along. And we have example after example of our ability to go from the digital forensic side, the digital intelligence and the real time crime center capabilities that we have and basically doing a ton of work for agencies and turn over a finished product where very soon after they can go and secure warrants or basically come to a conclusion on what happened throughout the course of that crime or criminal activity and save a lot of time and effort because of the tools and resources that we have. Yeah. Uh, digital forensics, just to give the listeners a little more, more description on that. So on the digital forensics front, the way I like to frame it, and I may have stolen this from somebody else, but <laughs> what we're trying to do is create a digital witness where we're allowing technology to help give us a unrefutable timeline of what's going on. And so when you think of cell phones, computers, uh, cell towers, uh, Internet of Things devices like uh, your smart devices, TVs, 
uh, Roku, Amazon Fire Sticks. All these devices are collecting data about you in some form or fashion. And I always give the caveat, through legal process, we're able to leverage this data and create those digital witnesses that essentially either help us prove or disprove someone's involvement in some type of incident or criminal activity. I'll give a short story. We were helping the agency north of us with a, a burglary that happened over a weekend. The prime suspect, based on the cameras, was a former employee. He ends up getting arrested. The FBI arrests him. They're doing the interview in the Birmingham area. and He won't give it up. And we have all this evidence. And so what we have is his data from his phone, his health data. So we had an Apple Watch and the Apple phone. So we had that But from what we returned from the search warrant. He even went as far as to when he went to the business. Usually if I work somewhere, I'm going to connect to their Wi-Fi. Well, he forgot to delete that. And so we have all this overwhelming evidence showing that we can tell you how many flights of stairs he went down to get mm-hmm. to the parking deck, go to his car, him driving from his apartment in Birmingham all the way up to Northeast Alabama, spent his phone connecting to the Wi-Fi, and then him going back home. He's on camera doing things. And the whole time, the owner's like, hey, just give me the money back. I won't press charges. I won't come up on it. And then we hit him with this overwhelming amount of evidence. And the big key about that is, is this your Apple Watch? Yes. Has it ever been out of your possession? No, it's been with me the whole time. Is this your cell phone? Has it ever been out of your possession? No, it's been with me the whole time. And I will have you locked into these devices without having the ability to have someone else do these maneuvers and do these movements. And now I have a huge digital case that I can take in front of a DA. And that's another component that we've worked really hard on, training our DAs and judges on how digital forensics work. Uh, because signing these search warrants and things like that can sometimes uh, be a little intimidating when they don't have a good understanding of how this stuff works so we've done really good with in our region the seventh judicial region allowing our investigators da's and our judges to understand how this stuff works and how we create these digital witnesses and we've been very successful in leveraging technology to help us bring people to justice and give family some level of closure yeah no that's that's fantastic and it does sound obviously you're well versed in how to use the tools so there's that aspect of technology, but then with the analyst position and understanding how people behave and how the certain things happen within a city and understanding that more practical aspect of it so that you can you understand certain why certain bit of information is more important than other information. Is is that something that innately came to you? I, I know you mentioned going on ride-alongs, but I was just wondering if you thought about that and could articulate how that aspect of your skill set came along. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a hands-on type of person, and so I, I'm very untypical when you think of an analyst. And so if we have a crime or crime scene, I'm going to the crime scene. I need to Mm -hmm. see things. I need to look at things because it helps me figure out why things took place or how can I uh, help in a situation. Prime example, recently we had an active shooter situation a couple months back, and I'm also a part of our special operations unit uh, dealing with drones and robotics. And so it was a training day. We're playing with uh, gas grenades and things like that, just trying to figure out a new piece of equipment. We hear a call go out as far as an active shooter. Now, could I have gotten my truck, pull up my computer, and pulled up cameras? Yes, but is that the most effective use of my time um, in an active shooter situation? Um, Because you still got to think about, I'm going to get called out anyway to start pulling video from the crime scene and a lot of the after effect stuff. 
so we all head that way and got there probably within a few seconds of the suspect being uh, put in custody. We ended up having a crime scene that was, I think, roughly an eighth of a mile long and ended up having three crime scenes. So mm-hmm. now we're having to pull video from our pole cameras. There was a couple of dash cameras that had potential video, video from several businesses on top of doing the things that I do with special operations, which is documenting a crime scene with drones, supporting our crime scene unit with the technology that they're deploying. And because I'm on scene, I'm able to kind of get a good lay of the land and figure out things that we need to do to help us document this crime scene as quickly as possible. And then this is the one of the worst possible areas for this type of situation to play out, where the suspect went from an entrance to I-20 all the way to a local gas station, uh, shooting at a individual, going to the actual gas station, shooting the gas station up, and by the grace of God, nobody actually lost their life during this event. Um, mm. But because of that drive skill set of I got to see it, I got to touch it, and a trip uh, contributing to making sure that we get all of the relevant digital evidence collected as quickly as possible. And then that allows our officers to focus on crime scene security, allows our investigators to focus on uh, documenting and collecting evidence. And that's just one less thing that they have to worry about because I'm able to be on scene and help take care of this, these type of digital things as, along with our other members of our unit. And so some days I'm in the office just watching cameras and helping stop shoplifters or catch shoplifters. And other days I'm actually out on crime scenes just helping in the digital aspect, make sure that we're check bo- checking all the boxes as far as things that we need to gather during the course of that investigation. All right. Now, you mentioned yesterday in the prep call that the population there is about 25,000. Yeah, so the city of Oxford, we're now officially the largest city in our county, which is Calhoun County. We're located right off of I-20, about halfway between the city of Birmingham and the city of Atlanta. Our actual resident population is around about 25,000, but our daytime mm-hmm. population can swell in excess of 100,000 because we're a retail shop. have a lot of industry like Fort McClellan. We are close to the Honda plant. Uh, we have some pretty large uh, manufacturers of like drywall and uh, furniture and things like that, all located within the city. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a lot of, we have a good uh, cross section of industry in our area. Um, and then also with us being a shopping hub, we get a lot of people in and out of the city on a daily basis. Now, some of the technology that you've described, it, do you feel that Oxford is is unique with us? We are very, very, and not being boastful, but mm-hmm. in order for us to be in the conversation, we're, we're in the same league as like your LAPDs, your NYPDs, your Chicago PDs, because of the level of technology that we have per capita. We're very fortunate that our chief is a really good visionary as far as thinking about the future. We have really good support from our mayor and city council. Um, who make sure we have everything that we feel like we need to make a positive impact, not only for Oxford, but for our county and our state and beyond. Our ethos is if we push crime out of Oxford, out of Calhoun County, out of East Central Alabama and beyond, everybody benefits from it. And that's evidenced by double-digit crime reduction pretty regularly, not only for us, but for other agencies that touch our borders. And so with that, with us only being about about an 80-man police department, we're very fortunate to have the level of technology that we do have because it don't it does not only impact us but it also impacts about I say roughly the estimates are about half a million people in our area of operation for the services that we have MOUs or memorandums of understanding with other agencies and that's to include we have full time unit of course we have the EMAC we have probably one of the 
best trained and well-equipped SWAT teams, which we refer to as ESU. And then the third special operations unit, which I'm also a member of, is the technical services unit, where we're throwing all this technology at our agency, equipping all of our officers, employees, and staff to use this equipment, and then take it out outside of the city borders to make sure that we're helping as many people as possible. Yeah, I find it fascinating because you certainly, any department can buy, they get their hands on the money or the grant, they can buy the technology. But it sounds like Oxford has been able to have really good investments in terms of the technology that they have, that they've really been able to not have wasteful spending is, I guess, another way of putting it to where where they've concentrated their efforts have really got a return out of their investment. Correct. And we try to be good stewards for the money that our citizens have entrusted to us. Where we can save money, we we try to, but we also pride ourselves on not investing in things that will not last or things that are gimmick or anything like that. Primarily, most of the things that we invest in are things that we will have for a long time or really will really make a, a huge impact. And so one of the biggest questions I get a lot of times is, especially with helicopters, is why does a small town police department need a full-time aviation unit? Well, because we are blessed with the generosity of our citizens and through the tax dollars that are generated through hotels and things like that, retail, uh, because of uh, all the people that come into our area and the people that are in the immediate surrounding counties, just having that resource that doesn't really exist outside of us in East Central Alabama uh, makes our citizens a lot safer. And we're able to do things in a safer manner because we have an aviation unit, because we have a drone and robotics unit. We're able to do things that not only keep our officers safe, but also keep our citizens at large safe. Having an aviation unit is, I've, I've heard estimates that that's equal to about 20 to 30 officers on the ground. When we're doing a search for a child or we're searching for a suspect or we're chasing the car, that resource really cuts down on the time and effort that it takes for us to capture an offender or find a missing child or find a missing hiker and things like that. Where doing things from the ground is just that much more harder having that technology like drones and helicopters and all the resources that we've been entrusted with just makes our jobs a lot more effective. And the biggest blessing outside of all that is having the appropriate staff to be in charge of these things. If you ever get a chance to come visit, our department looks like it was built yesterday. All of our equipment looks like it just came off the factory floor. We really take pride in everything that we're being given and the people that are behind these machines and equipment take pride in it as well. All right. You mentioned drones a couple of times now and that deals with one of your analyst badge stories. So let's get into that. Uh, for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is a career defining case or project. And so uh, this deals with a uh, barricaded suspect situation. And I think it's 2020. Is that is that right? Yes, sir. So up until this year, 4th of July has been the best and most chaotic day for us with respect to the city of Oxford. So uh, just to kind of set the tone for us, 4th of July, or the actual, whenever we celebrate 4th of July, is the one day a year that no one can take off because we usually have events throughout the city where including where we do our fireworks show and the surrounding areas where people are watching. We've had estimates of over 100,000 people attending these events. Events. So we try to have all hands on deck to basically set the tone that we're going to have a good time, we're going to have a good event, and, 
and we don't expect any problems, but when it does happen, we're going to deal with it, deal with it swiftly and allow our citizens and visitors to enjoy these festivities as, as simply and safely as possible. So during that event, we have the fireworks show, everything's wrapping up. And I remember I was doing the traffic detail on one of the major intersections where we're getting people out. So it's a very, very chaotic situation. Uh, you got, a, got thousands of cars trying to get out of two roadways going toward one of our two major roadways. Uh, so it's very chaotic. It's dark. You're working traffic, getting tired, your hands are hurting. So that's kind of where we are. Before we started dismissing traffic, we were hearing that there was a active shooter situation where officers pinned down and all the SWAT guys and all the technical service guys were kind of itching like, do we need to go? Or do you want us to go? So chief and our captains at the time, which included one of our SWAT commander, they go out to the scene, just kind of try to assess it. Finally, uh, activate our SWAT team. They're grabbing our Bearcat and our equipment truck and getting everything down there to go ahead and get to assist. So the what we knew about the, the scene at that point in time, apparently there was some type of domestic dispute between the husband and wife. He ends up pulling a gun. I believe he threatened the wife with the gun at some point in time during the altercation. And what set him off is I think he was confronted by one of his neighbors. And that's when he started shooting. I don't know if he shot at the neighbor specifically, but shots were fired. That police department that we went in support of is a very small department. I think they may have like one or two officers on the road at any given time and so they don't necessarily have the advanced equipment that a SWAT team would have to deal with a active shooter situation or a barricaded suspect and so it also just so happened that a local police chief at an agency north of us lived there and so basically they strap on all their attack vests grab rifles and basically drive his personal truck get the officer covered jump in the back of the truck and get him clear i want to say once the crime scene was processed i want to say there was an excess of 100 rounds fired by the suspect Ooh. during that event and even disabled uh, that agency's patrol car i get the call she says hey get the drone unit out here and so it was about a 20 minute drive from where we were for the fourth of july celebration to where we were in that city and all through that they, this was actually my first live operation as a drone operator so not only am I nervous, but I'm running through snares in my head as far as what I need to do. I need to make sure I have all my equipment, I'm trying to just think about all the things, all my fundamentals as I'm trying to get myself mentally prepared for walking into a situation with a barricaded suspect. And then something that's not very common for me every day now, which is throwing on a bulletproof vest and going into an active scene to do something to help make that scene safer or bring that suspect into custody. That was kind of a new thing for me in a civilian role. Mm -hmm. And so I finally get on scene. One of the things you see with public safety, when we're going to a scene, everybody comes and everybody forgets, hey, we may have to get something through this street. And so I have to grab like four or five cases and hump them to a point to meet the SWAT team, get in the back of the Bearcat, and then drive back up to the scene where we're going to operate from. And so we're very fortunate that we have a lot of equipment that help us get situational awareness. Chiefly among that is with my drone. I'm able to stream to a single display that I keep with me or stream with Fusis so that people who are not actually in the immediate zone of being able to view my drone can see that contribute and make whatever changes or suggestions or plans to deal with that situation as quickly as possible. And so as I'm set up, I'm positioned, I'm operating basically outside, just outside the Bearcat, outside the structure, basically in the line of fire, in the back of my mind, like, man, this is pretty daggone cool. This is what I signed up for. <laughs> 
and I kind of get the best of both worlds where I'm not a door kicker, but I get to hang out with the door kickers. Yeah. But it's a very chaotic scenario, but it's very calming seeing that I have overwhelming support. At the time, my sergeant over my unit was on the ESO team, so he's pretty much my eyes and ears because I got my head down and my controller. And I don't know, DJI products are pretty easy to fly, but once you go inside of a house, it's not the easiest thing to do. And so finally get set up, get my drone to approach the house, and then I have my first problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so every time anything that's going to go wrong goes wrong. So my drone wasn't responding the way I needed, and it wouldn't go inside the house. So I had to bring the drone back, recalibrate it, reset up some of the settings, and also gave me an opportunity to kind of calm my nerves because I'm used to having my drone unit coordinator right there with me doing stuff and telling me what to do, and I don't have that luxury right now. And so I got the ESU commander, the team leaders kind of hovered around me looking at the the controller and looking at the screen and it's a pretty intimidating scenario but you just gotta gut check it there's people's lives on the line uh, there's potentially victims in the house we're trying to make sure that none of our guys are getting hurt and then i don't have the opportunity to put a robot in the house just because the robot's back at special operations building and right now we're going to rely on a drone so i start making my approach again they were able to reach the front door and keep the front door popped propped open for me. That was a single story structure. So that was a, a really good relief because I only had one floor to cover and you no know, no basement, no upstairs, no attic. The only thing we were really worried about is that first floor. And so I make my approach into the house. We immediately go into the living room of the structure. And typically when I'm flying inside of a house, the biggest rule is don't fly backwards. So I'm doing a lot of 360 motions, making small deliberate movements to make sure that I'm holding what needs to be seen by the ESU commanders and they can see, feel good about, all right, we don't have suspect contact here. And I was able to clear about, I'll say conservatively about 65 to 70% of the structure and definitively tell SWAT commanders where the suspect wasn't. So this is where it starts getting interesting. So if we're looking at the front of the house, the left is the house is we have a living room, small dining room, kitchen, and then leading out to a carport storage area. And we felt pretty comfortable based upon our ability to view into the house that we had all those things covered. And we hadn't seen any movement for quite some time. So now comes the hard part to the right of the house is the hallway where all the bedrooms are. So I believe we had a three bedroom house with a bathroom in the hallway. And so now I'm moving down the hallway and it's a lot darker. Uh, one of the things that we've done to help us out with that is to put lights on top of our drones and on the bottom of our drone so we can get as much light as possible, even if there's total darkness. And so I'm able to clear the hallway, and this is where things go very south. <laughs> so I go into a bathroom. That's the place where he could be hiding and barricade himself, had the door open. Before I go into the bathroom, there's three other doors that are closed. One of them is partially closed, so I could not fly in them, but just because the doors are closed. So the last viable place for me to check with the drone before I'm going to make my exit is in the bathroom. And so I'm doing my 360 in the bathroom. And when you're flying a drone without GPS, you're pretty much at the mercy of the drift of the drone and making sure you can stay out of trouble. And we have mm -hmm. prop guards to make sure we don't get caught up. And I make my final 360 and I see a shower curtain in my face and my drone just goes belly up. And so I've uh -huh. lost the drone. And so the decision was made at that time, hey, we've cleared the majority of the structure. We feel like we know that he's not on uh, the left side of the house where the living room, uh, dining room, and kitchen are. We have units holding down uh, all the breezeways and everything, the uh, carport. We don't know. We don't feel like he's there. So then the decision is made to start gassing the house. And I think we lobbed a ton of gas in that house that night. No contact. And then we hear a single gunshot. And so what we believe 
is as soon as we started casting the house, the suspect realized that we were coming in and mm-hmm. he was going to be uh, confronting our to go and he decided that he would take his own life and one of the few rooms that i could not get in is where the suspect's body was actually found and so i like to beat myself up when it comes to i want to be perfect i want to do the best but what we were able to contribute as a drone unit prevented our SWAT team from having to go in and clear that house room by room by room and directly focus on where we feel like the suspect is minimizing our time and exposure in that house being able to secure the structure and every all of us go home safe, all the citizens go home safe, and the, the suspect is neutralized and no longer will victimize anybody. So that that was a pretty hairy day, but it was a good day. It goes to show that even a little bit of technology, and that drone that I flew in that house wasn't expensive. It was a little $600 mini one. It did what it needed to do, kept our guys safe, and had a positive outcome for us. Yeah. Now, with the drones, and this might be Jason getting into too much sci-fi, is it... <laughs> Is it possible to, as you're flying into a room, that it gives you a rendering of that room? Like it so would that scan that? Does, yeah, that technology does exist. It's a little bit more costly. That's mm-hmm. something that we haven't specifically dove into. But essentially, you're using LiDAR. So if you ever think of like a Faro scanner or some of the similar scanners, the technology does exist to do stuff like that. It's just not affordable right now. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. That's that is interesting. So, damn. All right. Well, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I know we got a couple other stories here. So let's go on to your <laughs> second one here because it again, it's July. It's the following year, 2021, and this is a kidnapping. Yeah. So I, I don't know what it is, uh, but again, that train for the third year in a row. And so how this situation panned out, again, it's our 4th of July festivities. It's a very festive time, but again, we've been working all day. Typically, my days start between like 4 and 5, just because of all things that I have to contribute to. And so um, by midday, I'm pretty gassed, but that's nothing a few Red Bulls can't cure, at least for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And so we have a really good relationship with all of our public safety. So I have conversations constantly with our fire chief, assistant fire chief, our EMS director. And so the assistant fire chief came up to me. This is about like 10 o'clock. And he was saying that, hey, uh, did you hear about Miss Cobb? And at the time, I didn't know her. She wasn't familiar to me, but I've heard her name in different circles. And she has been a volunteer firefighter and EMT for decades. And has just been a real pillar of Calhoun County, especially in public safety and part of goal would help anybody whenever she can so this is why this case was so special to us and she actually was a really good friend of our police chief and so that's kind of when things hit home you kind of remember them a little bit more Mm -hmm. details or any of the details that i would like to forget i can't just because of just how vivid that day was and so having that conversation with the assistant fire chief he was asking hey did you hear what happened to her and he's describing a scene to me that just based on my training and experience sounded like something that we should have been called in on a lot sooner but hadn't yet because that agency was trying to figure out as much as they could mm-hmm. and so basically the way it was described was uh, her husband came home found a bunch of grocery bags all over the uh, driveway her trunk was still open i think she was missing like a shoe or something like that her purse was on the ground which i believe contained her phone as well so the initial assumption was she may have had some type of mental episode or had some type of event that caused her to, to freak out and run to the woods and so all of the teams that were up there at that point in time were checking the woods trying to check other people's houses i think there may have been like a pond or something like that in the area that they were trying to check and see if there was any signs of disturbance but when you see things you hear certain elements you kind of get a feeling that something is just not 
Right. And so that whole time, our unit's like, we're just waiting on the call. Uh, we ended up sending an officer to be a liaison to just give us information. Had our aviation unit on standby, had a couple of our TAC guys on standby, and the intel unit, we're just waiting for the call. And so that's around 10 a.m. We start the festivities. We're going through the event. Still don't get the call. And so our roll call is at 3 o'clock that day. We go to roll call. Still no calls. We're kind of getting our briefings for the day. And we're about to head back to our post, uh, one of which is EMAC and the other, which is where we are at the event. And so we were having a quick staff meeting uh, at the EMAC. So all of our unit members were actually in the building. And we finally get the call around 4 o'clock. And so... I'm talking to the sheriff directly and the investigator who is is the primary on the case and we're getting all this information, getting all those details. And the one piece of evidence that really broke it open for us is they actually found one of the receipts from where she was shopping, which gave us some key information. Uh, one, where she was shopping at, and then we actually have a hard timeline of where we can start uh, checking our cameras. And it's fortunate that most of our shopping was done in the city of Oxford, where we have really good camera coverage. Mm -hmm. But this is where it starts dark. And so we finally find her car on the cameras and we work with that retail with those retailers to get their videos very quickly so we can start looking for what we need to find. Not much bothers me with respect to my job, even with all the things that we deal with in public safety. But actually seeing a unknown offender, this is not something where this suspect knew the victim or anything like that this is totally random hey i saw this lady come out i'm gonna victimize her and watching that old busted up vehicle following somebody from camera to camera to camera to location to location to location made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up it was very eerie mm -hmm. these are things that you typically see in the movie like that doesn't happen in real life and actually seeing that in real life is i guess took it to another notch for us as we're doing that and so what we're actually looking at is the pole cameras that we have in these strategic areas where uh, we have uh, several shopping areas and then what broke the case for us was our lpr and so the suspect actually drove his personal car um as he stopped for a victim and so we were able to track his movements based on the car and confirm that when her vehicle hit the lpr his car hit the lpr very soon after and we were very fortunate that we had LPRs in place that were able to paint this picture for us. And we were able to track her and him all the way up to the point where they left the city limits. Based on that information, now we have his tag. We're running the history. And this is where we have, our, I guess, our first road bump. Car comes back to a female. And we start running the history on her and using all of our tools and databases. And we develop an, a, a male suspect through the course of using those tools. And so we're running a history on that suspect. We go agent on the phone number, get a location, find the phone somewhere in the western part of the city, start sending investigators and attack teams in that area, get our helicopters on in that area to do overwatch, and we start running a criminal history on that person. And so by this time, Chief is in the building as well, just kind of getting information, getting prepared to release whatever information we need to the media, just kind of keep them abreast of what's going on, but not compromise our investigation. And so he sees the name of the suspect we're looking at. He's like, hey, I know that guy. He's one of the vendors at the event that we're doing for 4th of July. And we're <laughs> like, Dang. So we send two of our investigators over to talk to him, and the female that actually the car comes back to is there as well, ends up being her his daughter. And so the investigators are asking questions, and no, not trying to really allude to what's going on, but trying our best to figure out who potentially the suspect is driving. And so they ask the daughter, hey, this car is in your name, who's driving it? Oh, that's my ex-husband. He, he kept the car. 
it's just registered in my name. And so now we have a new suspect and we have to start this process all over again where we're going A's on the phone, get the location, and we finally get a location to another house in the city north of us. And so unbeknownst to us, she jumps on the phone and calls him and says, hey, the police are looking for you. What did you do? <laughs> now, I was a little upset about that because that tipped him off. So we weren't able to apprehend him at that moment. But at the same time, that probably stopped the victimization of our victim from that point on. And so we get that GPS location of the phone. We find him. He ended up taking her to his house where his name was registered to the house, which, again, just makes it more. Hey, she might not make it out of this if we don't find her quickly because Mm -hmm. he didn't cover his face. He took her in his car and took her to his house and assaulted her. And so get the helicopter oversight. We got about three or four different cities, tack teams going to the house and then investigators from our unit head out there as well. We take the house down, start systematically searching it, and they ended up finding her inside of a closet. Obviously, signs of assault, things like that. But she's alive. She's okay. But now the suspect is outstanding. Helicopter does a search of the area. We don't find any uh, cars that are registered to him. We don't see him walking. We don't see him walking anywhere in the area for us to like go apprehend him or anything like that. So he's in the wind. Mm-hmm. He was in custody within 36 hours of us involved in that situation, um, which is pretty, pretty uh fast with respect to dealing with a suspect who's on the run and through the tools and resources that we had we knew where he was and where he was going for an extended amount of time and we were able to catch up to him in kentucky and actually the kentucky state police was able to stop the vehicle that he was in being driven by i wanted i would say an unwilling participant who didn't really know what he had just done but we were able to get him in custody and then extradite mm-hmm. him back to alabama and then it gets even crazier and so <laughs> the sheriff's department is doing their press conference just kind of explaining the events what goes on and we knew this but this is the first time that the public was was being notified that hey this suspect matches the description of a serial rapist within Calhoun and Talladega counties. We're going to be submitting his DNA fast track to see if he is actually a suspect. And if you look at the drawing of the suspect from the unsolved crimes versus the suspect's uh, mugshot, it's almost like somebody traced his picture off the mugshot. Oh, wow. Like, that's how accurate. And so once the DNA came back, we were able to actually tie him to two unsolved rapes, uh, mm-hmm. one where the victim had already died, still alive so he was able to be charged with that from that agency in another county when we started doing the history on this individual that's when it continued to keep getting darker and darker and darker and so he was a certified nursing assistant and he worked in nursing homes and worked with the elderly and so Mm -hmm. even though we had three victims that could attribute to nay we will never know how many people he potentially victimized because of the area that he worked in and so Going from all these ebb and flows, these up and downs, it's an emotional drain when you know it's all online, you know it's at stake, and literally having a part in literally saving someone's life is one of the most rewarding things that I've ever experienced in life in general. And I think that was the first time I got a actual, basically a, a citation of excellence or however they word it from yeah. this agency. Just because nice. of everything, our unit. Everybody who contributed, um, literally all of the efforts of everybody who contributed that they saved this lady's life and in a very impossible situation and scenario where at any moment her life could have been taken in order for that suspect to try to conceal his crime again. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just because of technology and the people behind the technology, 
we were able to save that lady's life that day. Nice. So you you mentioned capturing data uh, earlier, trying to get it away from paper reports, and that's the beauty of LPR is it's scanning the license plate and and digitizing that, so you could search the license plate of the vehicle. When you are dealing with the surveillance cameras, do you have software there, or is it a, just a tedious process of knowing where the camera is and what time frame that the the victim and suspect would have went through that that area? So initially, all we had were cameras. In the worst kind of scenario, all we had were PTZs, and everybody had to log into it. And so mm-hmm. even if I knew the camera was supposed to be looking at something, it would hit the shot that it had exactly what I needed at the time. And so when that's right around time, I was hired. And the goal was to try to find a better solution. So that's when we started doing multi-camera systems that would allow us to be able to document a wider area. Even if the PTZ wasn't showing exactly what we needed to, we still had other cameras, whether it be bullet cameras or multi-sensors that documented the entire area minimizing us losing any video that would be relevant. But then the downside to that is, as we start getting more advanced cameras and we're getting more cameras around the city, it's mm-hmm. not fun trying to watch a video even 10 minutes to find one little piece of, of a video clip to help with the investigation. That's something I actually ended up doing this morning. It was the first thing I started out with was analyzing the video. We actually are now relying on, and I don't like using this term, but everybody uses it, uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence or machine learning take a lot of the human error out of what we're doing. And so we're using some software called BriefCam where I can take about 98% of the video formats that are out there, put it into this system, and it does all the heavy lifting for me. So if I'm looking for a red two-door car that went northbound on one of our roadways, I can get that granular with this system to minimize how much video I'm actually having to review. Now, it Mm -hmm. may show me 30 Red two-door cars going down this roadway for this particular time frame, but out of thousands of potential objects, I'm only focusing on 30 now. I can do 30. Mm -hmm. I can Mm -hmm. figure it out, back my way into that. But it's basically increased infinitely our ability to process video and get actionable intel and data literally within, I say, as as, as little as five to 10 minutes, we have actionable data and intel that we can go back and review and start making investigative uh, decisions or law enforcement action based upon what we're able to get out of that system. Well, and one of the coolest cases, so we had a trailer stolen about 6 a.m. Because of that software, because of the LPR, we had the trailer recovered by 9 a.m. <laughs> oh, nice. So let's get to your third analyst badge story then and this is 2022 and it's a bank robbery yes and so we're again with the technology that we have makes it a a lot quicker for us to take traditional information and data and make it actionable a lot quicker and so during this time we had a bank robbery ironically at the community bank that i used to work at so this made it even more important for me to help solve this bank robbery Mm-hmm. So essentially, because of our proxy I-20, people get off on our exits, go commit a crime, and then jump back on I-20. And so we didn't have very much the means of physical evidence, so we had no fingerprints, we had no DNA. All we had to rely on was video. The investigator that was analyzing the video, it, I think within about a day or two, he finally identified the suspect's car. He came off one of our first exits from I-20 going westbound parks the car behind a local restaurant, walks over to the bank, has a mask and a hat on, you know, here, COVID makes things a lot harder to identify people. 
does a note job, passes the note, asks for a specific amount of money, gets that money, and then gets back on the car and goes back onto the freeway. By just happenstance, now that we have a general idea of what his tag looks like, one of our other analysts, who is now one of our digital friends examiners, just happened to be in Georgia driving and sees a drive-out tag that exactly matches the suspect's vehicle. <laughs> the suspect was wow. on a very <laughs> unique price list. We were able to call that dealership now that we knew what dealership it was and uh, say, hey, can you tell us about this car? Did you sell it? He's like, well, you got to give me more information. He said, well, will the picture help? And he's like, yeah, yeah, send me that. And so within about 10 minutes, we had the suspect's uh, name, um, address, and phone number. And we're working in conjunction with the FBI at this point, too, because it's a bank robbery. Mm-hmm. And so uh, because of the information, thankful to the state of Georgia, their drive-out tags are readable by LPRs. Not mm-hmm. every state can do that. Yeah. And so through that, we were able to basically track his history. Literally every day we're tracking him, seeing where he's going. Uh, I think he ended up robbing two more banks after ours. And the last bank, he walked out, the FBI and Sheriff's Department arrested him. And then mm-hmm. about four or five months later, he pled guilty to all the robberies that we were aware of. Man, that, that, that this is something, though. Hmm. All right. Very good. So I guess in, in terms of all of this technology, you've you talked about a couple of different stories now in terms of using this technology in, in key events. Either what do you wish you would have or what do you think is next in terms of your police department in terms of technology? What's coming down the pike? So I think the biggest need that we have right now, which I think everybody is facing, is manpower. Um, mm-hmm. We're very fortunate that our department, one, if you come here, it takes a lot for you to leave as far as going and seeking other appointment elsewhere. And so now we're getting to a point where a lot of our command staff and mid-level um, supervisors are close to retirement. And it's at the point where they're actually losing money by not retiring. And so they're having to go ahead and take that huge leap. And we just had a huge uh, change in our command staff over the past few months. And so keeping the people, technology is all great and wonderful, but if you don't have the people that are willing to put the time in to learn how to use it, use it effectively and make an impact, I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm seeing. And especially in today's uh, climate with law enforcement, it's not the most glorious profession, um, you know, take a lot of heat within the public on social media news things like that and so it's not a career that this younger generation sees as something that is something that is desirable and then the other part is we're dealing with younger and younger generations where they don't see the value of coming up through the ranks putting your time in you got i we go to recruiting events and what i got to do to be an investigator like can i get hired as an investigator well no you got to start out learn the basics work the road for a few years and then maybe you can apply to be in a specialized unit a lot of kids think that based on tv and these things that you just go from high school or graduate from college and come and, and do the things that we're doing in these specialized units. And so just the education of how law enforcement works and getting people turned on to it. And then specifically with technology, um, one of our biggest hurdles right now is uh, in the legislative um, arena, whether it be on the state or uh, federal level. And so one of the things is a lot of this technology that we use has a negative connotation to it because there's potentiality for people's uh, uh, civil rights to be um, violated. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I always try to stress, is, even for me working at this agency and just having access to the things that the state says I can, I have to go through a bunch of hoops periodically to make sure that I can legally do these things. And when I'm using this data and information, it's done under legal authority in relation to an investigation. Um, mm-hmm. 
we have a lot of checks and balances to ourselves, but you still have certain elements of our legislative body or even citizens at large that have a huge misunderstanding of how we use this, not this technology and the potentiality for it to be abused, which I understand. I can empathize mm-hmm. with that, but at the same time, we have to do a good job of uh, uh, letting our legislators and the public know why this technology is important and how it's used every day, literally saving lives every day. And I don't want to become a situation where it is not realized until your loved one is the one that needs the help from us. And so I think that's the two main areas is personnel, but then also getting the world at large and our legislators to understand that the more we're handcuffed, I don't mind over site and making sure that we document when things are being done but mm-hmm. if there's any kind of reduction in our ability to take technology and any in any significance that can be the difference between us being able to save someone's life and not all right very good so we're going to move on now and this is where i'm looking for your help because as i mentioned in your introduction i uh, have very hard feelings towards police departments <laughs> it staff during my history i have I have often described them as the party of no and not giving me any kind of workarounds to my current problem. And I've actually nicknamed them fit, which which you probably get the IT of that. But the, the F <laughs> version of that is the, some might describe it as freaking, but I don't use freaking. OK. So I realize I am conscious of my bias and my frustrations as an analyst trying to do the, my best job and understanding that a lot of police departments have limited IT sources. And so when I am been part of police departments asking for something, they'll be like, well, yeah, we probably could do that, but that's going to take like three or four months when this other, all these other projects that the IT staff are doing get freed up. And so I'd, I've always been an advocate of is trying to allow analysts to have some, maybe some more freedoms with the data, with technology, with the computer programs uh, at police departments, allow them to come up with solutions that uh, can help them do their job better, faster that they do it. And this gets into admin rights and just having more access to uh, computers. And so I lay all that out to you, knowing (laughs) your background. And so seeing that maybe you're either going to talk me off the ledge or you're going to push me over. And so, again, that's why my job was created in the first place is to try to bridge that gap between the things that our IT no-nos and allowing our end users to be as efficient as possible. And so my approach is always customer service first. And that comes from my time spent in the retail world and banking and things like that. And it's even changed my perspective on policing because before I did all that, I worked at a previous agency and kind of had that law enforcement mind. But now mm-hmm. I have that customer service, law enforcement. Of how do we bridge that gap? And so for me, and the things that we're working on, and these are actually active projects that we're doing. So we're about to go through a huge culture shift when it comes to respect to admin rights and things like that. And so when I first got here, everybody had admin access to all their PCs, things like that, which um, seems convenient. It's mm-hmm. the easiest way to get things done. But at the same time, that is the most prevalent way where networks are compromised, where city governments, county governments are at a point where they're at a Standstill because they've been attacked by ransomware. And so our, our approach 
and this is me working with CDIT as a representative of public safety, is what do you guys want and how can we make it easier on our end users? And we always find some kind of middle ground. Initially, when I, everything that was connected to the city was ripped apart and it was my responsibility, including networks, databases. And even though I liked having that control, it sucked because there were other individuals that could be helping me out. But because of the disconnect, I was basically on an island by myself. Now, I learned a lot as far as the department, our needs, how we can adjust and try to fit closely more to what IT should be while still giving that great customer service and allowing our users to work as freely as possible. The other concern was that my unit specifically, we have to see and do and access things that typically are not done in the average corporate or police environment. And so that's another balance that I have to do as far as making sure that they have everything they need in our intelligence unit to be as efficient as possible. And so I have all these different scenarios and I have to make them all work and work cohesively. Fortunately, initially, basically the charge that I got from chief was, hey, however you wanted to do, that's what it's going to be. And I'll back and not wanting to abuse that and just be the IT uh, czar and it's my way or the highway. That's not the way I try to approach it. And over, mm -hmm. over the years, I've been able to help City IT along with, hey, we can find common ground up until the point where I'm turning a ton of stuff back over to them because now I'm a, a fourth member of the city's IT team. So I have uh, access and purview for the entire city. But if I need to do things specifically for the IT department, I have that autonomy and flexibility to do that. But then I have three other IT minds that can help me on big projects or things that we all have those moments where we may be really good at something, but I just can't figure it out. It's on the tip of my tongue or my brain is in a fog and I have three other minds that I can go to and bounce ideas off. And it can be the most simplest, stupidest thing that I can't figure <laughs> out just by talking to it gets solved or just big projects as far as, hey, I have a server I need to buy. This is going to be a lot of money how can we save money and not abuse the city's graciousness to us? And so that's kind of our approach now where finding that uh, synergy between the end user for a public safety spectrum is not going to be the same for somebody accessing YouTube at the city garage to figure out how to fix something. Mm -hmm. And so we've done a lot to upgrade our network to kind of at the first initial point that our networks touch the world, we're throwing everything we can at it to block as much as possible. But then on the same breath, we're only as good as that least trained user who can, and we've had this happen actually this week where somebody got an email, you need to log into your OneDrive. And what do they do? They log into their OneDrive and then a bunch of emails from their email account start being sent to other people trying to get them to compromise their stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And so because of these events lately, now we have the support of the mayor and the city council that if IT doesn't say it can be done as far as technology, it's not getting done. But we understand the power that we have and we're not trying to prevent anybody from being efficient, but at the same time doing as much as we can to prevent the end user from getting themselves in trouble. And so we're taking that security posture where secure the network secure the endpoint and we've got some pretty robust programs and systems to help us do that and then now we're going to start cult uh, embracing the culture of the end user by training them making them feel better about using technology i have one user that'll text me hey is it okay to update the apps on my phone and then you have that other user that is pretty decent that makes sure that all the computers that they're responsible for are getting patches or getting updates basically with like windows update nothing that needs admin credential and then now we're introducing more 
for uh, iOS and Mac devices into our ecosystem, where now we're able to empower the end user. Hey, I'll be able to I'll you get an allotment of admin time per week. And so if you need to mm-hmm. install a quick program, you get click a request. It gives you admin rights for two minutes. Install your program. Log out of that to save time. And then I get an alert as one of the IT staff. Hey, this program has been installed. I make sure it's OK. And so now, now we're equipping them to be a little more autonomous, but still have that roadblock that will prevent them from creating chaos for us. And for me specifically, why that's so important is we've had agencies that we partner with that have gone through ransomware and still have not fully recovered as far as where they need to be from an IT infrastructure. So we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we keep ourselves vulnerable when we have clear-cut resources to prevent it, but then also not be too strict on our end users and find that middle ground where we fulfill our requirements as far as the IT team, but also allow our users to be as efficient as possible. And then the last point to that is a lot of people don't realize but for instance, for cybersecurity insurance, in order for me to get the lowest rate for cybersecurity insurance as an IT department and for the city, there are certain things that insurance companies expect us to do. And every time we say, no, we're not doing this or no, this has not been implemented yet, we're costing the taxpayers more money. And so we're always trying to find that balance of being good stewards, of making sure we have that protection, but at the same time, reducing the cost of that protection by making sure the department in the city are doing things that are industry standards to make sure that we're protecting ourselves, protecting the city, and reduce the chances of us having some type of cyber attack, or if it does happen, we can mitigate it and compartmentalize it as quickly as possible. When when I think back and some of the frustrations that I have is as an analyst, I want to limit the amount of time that I have to process data, whether I'm cleaning the data or getting it into the right format, the right product, I want to minimize that because you want to get to the analysis portion of of your job. And so I I think that was my main frustration is like, look, I I want to schedule tasks. I I want to be able to do stuff, go more into automation with with some of these everyday tasks so i don't have to come in and spend my first hour hitting all these buttons and mm-hmm. and trying to run macros and all this other stuff to get my day ready and so for me the simplest solution for something like that is that's a dedicated machine that has a particular set of tasks that need to be done and so it goes on a separate network i put it on a different mm-hmm. vlan it can't touch certain things all it does is what its functions are supposed to do and if I need to pull resources or things like that, I can create certain firewall w- rules to allow it to do what it needs to do to talk to other machines. But there, for every problem, there is a solution that can mm-hmm. fulfill the security needs that we have, but also let that operate. So a prime example, our forensic lab does a lot of stuff that if you check our internet history and our internet traffic, will look very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, that type of traffic, can't be on my normal network. And so by me segregating them off, and even a lot of our equipment doesn't even touch the internet, so it doesn't even touch the network, we've created an environment where we've got them siloed and isolated off our main network so that if they do get into something that could potentially damage our network, it's just isolated to what they're doing in their machines, which is a lot easier to recover a handful of PCs or devices versus the entire network. And so it takes a little bit more brain power and a little bit more probably budgetary considerations. But for every problem that a user will run into, there's usually a few solutions that will be very amicable. And for us, so like our network at our intelligence center, 
is totally separated from the rest of the city and so that allows us to do things that are a little bit more aggressive or more administrative uh, type roles in a way that makes it easy for our end users but also protects the city at large well it doesn't sound like you're the member of the party of now sounds no, like I've been, I've been there before and th- that's kind of my approach when i was on the road when i was first starting my police career i knew how much it sucked to not be able to do something <laughs> right then and there but that's why I try to keep an open mind and the city IT is kind of on the same page with me is the answer is not always no is can we find a solution that allows us to do what we need to do from an IT standpoint, but also allow the end users to do what they need to do. All right, very good. Let's move on to some advice for your listeners, specifically for you. If an analyst is listening to this is either maybe in a real-time crime situation or is maybe supporting investigations is getting into some of this technology that you described here today what advice would you give them and how they can better educate themselves to be better at doing what you do me the first thing is don't be afraid to fail um uh, if I haven't failed or gotten in trouble several times in a day, I don't feel like I've been trying <laughs> harder. And not in the sense of me doing something that uh, will mess with my integrity or prevent me from being uh, a law enforcement employee. But don't be afraid to break stuff. Don't be afraid to try new things. Uh, and then that leads to being open-minded to learn new skills, learn new technology. And probably one of the biggest assets for me is I've been fortunate enough to attend uh, several national and regional conferences where I get outside of my bubble and compare what other people are doing and take some of those best practices. So things like the the ACA and just all these organizations like the Real Time Crime Center organizations. I never thought that I would be a member or associate member of ICP. There's just so many resources out here where you don't necessarily have to have formal training or a formal background to learn a skill. And learning as many skills that are applicable to where you want to go in your law enforcement career is, is to me, very key. I'm learning every day. I don't feel like the way I describe myself is I'm allegedly an IT guy because, it has, <laughs> um, but that, for one, that keeps me humble because I, I know I don't know everything. I have a lot to learn. Uh, I'm not afraid to make mistakes and I'll probably make a t- ton of mistakes. I'll probably be stressed out of my mind, but nobody knows it because I try to be the same to me whether we're dealing with a high stress situation, whether I'm having a bad day. Um, I just want to deliver the best I can for my agency every single day. I have good days, I have bad days, but you'll never know it. Every day is a good day for me. It's kind of my ethos and everything. Anybody asks me, how's it going today? Well, good day. It's a beautiful day in the city of Oxford, and I could be <laughs> dealing with the worst type of scenario in life. My personal stuff should not impact how my agency is being serviced, and if that's a problem, take some time off, recon, uh, you know, reconnect with my spiritual being and with my family, go back to work, refresh and renew. But don't, don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid to break stuff and seek knowledge. I wasn't real, real big on LinkedIn as far as I don't, I'm not big on promoting myself. I don't like a lot of notoriety. I'm fine. Hey, chief, gives me a handshake. Appreciate that and go about my own. But, but starting to put myself out there, see where this industry is going, where I can contribute and then I've been a part of something that's new in the state of Alabama as far as driving technology for public safety. 
I've been a part of a group that's basically changed the face of the public safety technology in the state of Alabama. We've been able to do things that have literally saved people's lives or bring closure to a family based on the resources and training that we've been able to have. And all that came from just putting a group of people who decided, hey, we're going to become good at this, we're going to become great at and utilize whatever chief and the city council and the mayor is able to give us to the best of our abilities. And I could talk days about what we've been able to do with what we've been blessed with and then specifically don't go get a criminal justice degree that's probably one of my biggest things i wish i never did <laughs> <laughs> i wish i got a degree in something not saying there's anything wrong with a criminal justice degree but there's more to public safety than just putting bad guys in jail or studying case law mm-hmm. having a background get an it degree or get a degree in public administration uh, if you saw the things that I was able to contribute to day to day. It can go from consulting with the mayor on something that I have no business consulting on to dealing with the public on how do you protect your home network or how do you deal with spam on your phone. Just every day is different. And the more that I gain knowledge, the more that I'm willing to, you know, step outside of my comfort zone. I'm thinking about getting my master's. I just can't decide whether what I want to get it in because I don't want to just continue down this path of criminal justice, criminal justice. I do this every day. And so what value am I getting by just getting a master's in criminal justice? So I want to challenge myself, expand my tool bag and be able to, to be as marketable as possible. And at the end of the day, someday I'm going to have to retire and with that resume that i built maybe the private sector will be something that i'm able to step into with that wealth of knowledge and training and be able to help public safety from the private sector with one of our partners or other vendors that are out there and just continuously equipping myself and not being content with just hey i got an analyst job and i'm gonna be an analyst for 25 years and retire if that's what you want to do no expect that so if you're willing, you show the initiative to your command staff, you never know what opportunities may fall in your lap. Yeah, and I, I am right there with you on the education piece. I, you could take criminal justice as a minor. You mm-hmm. take uh, five classes in criminal justice, and I think you would get uh, a basic education to to understand the system. And then some of these other other majors at business accounting computers as you as you mentioned it does almost seem like it's it's a little bit better to get some hands-on education and then just have the criminal justice minor on the side and in terms of return on investment something that an analyst can study now because five years it'll be important i mean obviously technology is going to be the the future is there any particular technology or anything that we should be keeping our eye on? So just looking at four fundamentals of things that won't necessarily change, they may evolve. Having a basic understanding of IT, I think is very important, even in the analyst standpoint, because if you're working in an agency that may not have a on-staff IT person, that allows you to have a little bit more influence on maybe your chief or whoever's in charge of the analyst may say, hey, because you have have this understanding, maybe you can take on more roles to influence how the IT infrastructure at your department is. Then that opens up to getting into cameras, understanding just basic networking. Like we got a gentleman that's uh, been in law enforcement for over 40 years and he came to the unit and I don't really know much about the technology, but he was willing to learn. And he may not be the best person at networking, but he knows enough to help us stay efficient and keep up on our maintenance for our equipment. Um, Taking 
analytical classes or statistics or just things that help us take numbers and, and turn them into actionable data. Even being, I know Google and Microsoft do a lot of certifications for managing a lot of their software. Mm -hmm. There's many things that are outside the traditional training of analytics or an analyst that can bring value not only to yourself personally, but being able to be an expert user in Excel and things like that where that may be the only product that your agency can use for analytics mm -hmm. at this point in time by you having that expert knowledge, being able to turn out really good reports and really good data and start linking all these different cells and things like that to put a real picture behind the anal anal analysis part of what we're doing. I remember probably the first fundamental thing I did from analytics. So from our unit, I have to justify our existence every year. And so literally I took a spreadsheet and put down we tracked all the types of requests. I think we had, we were up to like 20 or 25 different services, categories that we use, both from just general IT to all the services that we have as an agency. And then at the end of the year, to be able to take that to the chief, the mayor city council, hey, look, we helped with about, we had about a thousand requests this year for all these things. Last year, we've increased about 20 to 30% in these different areas. And then now we can ask for, hey, can we increase our budget for this for about five to 10%? And then we're also, have the ability to now even internally in the city track crimes in a different way, track trends in a different way, even just using very rudimentary programs that are out there. And so learn as much as you can about the basic fundamentals of things that are out there. A lot of this training is free. And I think that helps build that little foundation. Now, does that mean you have to train to be an IT manager? No, but just knowing a little bit about the fundamentals of technology, I think opens a lot of doors and it also removes a lot of the inhibitions of getting into more advanced technology. I really feel like everybody in my unit has some level of understanding to be able to help me in any capacity of my IT uh, responsibilities here confidently. All right. Very good. All right. Let's finish up with words to the world. This is where I give the guests the last word. Kevin, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Essentially, I would just love to see a world where we had less conflict. I want to see a time where my job is not relevant, <laughs> but because uh, we live in a very polarized society, there's all kind of things going on in the world. I just really encourage people who feel like they can contribute to public safety. You don't have to be a police officer. You don't have to be a firefighter. If you have that call to be of service, to be a servant, there are plenty of things that you can do in the public safety spectrum that don't involve you carrying a badge, carrying a gun putting yourself in danger that will literally do things that can save a person's life or change a person's life for the good every single day. It's just as important as those officers that go from call to call, those firefighters that run fire calls and EMS calls, the EMS guys that are basically doing CPR and saving people's lives and transporting them. There are other support roles in the background that make a difference for every type of public safety agency. And I just encourage people, if you have that desire, you have that drive, to be of service to your community, consider getting into public safety. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. Give me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Kevin. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.